This podcast is brought to you by Touch a Life. Welcome to Happy Homes and Gardens. I am your host. My name is Daphne Royce. I am a real estate broker, architecture, and interior designer. Jack McCauley wears many hats and can be described as an engineer, hardware designer, inventor, video game developer, investor, and philanthropist. But he is most well known for Guitar Hero and Oculus VR. Let's welcome Jack to tell us more about his ventures. Hello, Jack. Hello. Thank you, Daphne. I'm getting to know you, and and I, I know some common people. Uh, it, about myself, um, just let me talk about uh, the childhood a little bit, and that'll give you a, a broad picture of where I'm at. Um, I'm, I'm actually started as an artist. I, I was a, um, a prolific painter and drawer, but it was all science fiction stuff. And as a kid, um, and then I didn't know how things worked, like an engine in a car, or you know. A rifle or whatever. I just had no clue, but I could draw it. So I endeavored at some point later on in my probably early teens to try to figure out how things worked. And I would go to the library and I would read a book. That's what I did. There were no computers. I mean, we had a PDP 11 over in high school. I wasn't into that at the time. But there were really no personal computers per se. That few out there that. So you had to go to read, and that's what I did. I, I'm a prolific reader of technical journals and so forth. So, and that's sort of what got got me launched. And and、um, in addition, I got a nationwide scholarship at age nine、uh, for design. I did、um, just a side note, but I, I've always like、uh, enjoyed drawing and painting and art and music and things like that. That's really where I'm at.、Um, it, going into video games is a natural. Uh, thing for me because I like visual stuff and、uh, grunge named me the top 100 living inventors along with Musk and Jennifer Doudna at UC Berkeley, who's a colleague, CRISPR gene editing、uh, person. So、uh, I just, as a kid, that's all I did. You know, I I, I was kind of a、um, a little bit introverted and shy. I think I'm not so shy anymore, but and this sort of played well for me because I like to be alone and just. Check things out, so hobbyist, and I had all kinds of, you know, mechanically oriented hobbies, electrical things. So, just a kid who'd like to, to hack stuff and you know take things apart, and and so later on in life,、um, I decided that I would stop screwing around in school and try to get my my act together academically, and I did.、Um, I transfer. I got a scholarship to UC Berkeley from the Navy,、uh, full scholarship. Um, to attend UC Berkeley, which was a real gift. Now, my my opinion of UC Berkeley at the time, that's my opinion, was that it was hard.、Um, I didn't understand why they had me do silly things.、Uh, it seemed silly to me, but it was disciplining me to work. Learning learning to work is what you learn in school how to work. And I was a beneficiary of U.S. taxpayers'、um, generosity. And、uh, they've been paid back in full spades. <laughs> so I am an inventor. I got numerous patents.、Um, I invented a scrolling mouse going back in the '80s. All kinds of gadgets. Not all of them I finish. I start out and and then I'll abandon the invention if I see it's not 
commercializable or fruitful in any sort of, you know, commercial way. So I did inventions and you brought up Guitar Hero, of course. I, I, uh, that's another thing that I'll mention this, that my uh, career is built on the backs of others. It's not just me. My, um, my relationships with people go back 40 years, we're colleagues and so forth. And I make a habit of calling people um, if it's acceptable, you know, if it's correct to do so, I will call them and say how they're doing or go out to lunch with them. And one of the guys that um, who hired me back in the 80s as a hardware engineer, digital hard, sequential logic engineer, software engineer, uh, I stayed in touch with for 40 years. And through that guy, I started getting gigs. He would like, hey, you should talk to this guy. You know, that's kind of the way it goes. I never had a resume. I didn't have a corollary resume because of the industry that I'm in is pretty small and people know each other. Like HR requires you to give an employment application or a resume, but I never really had one. I just kind of know people. So that's that's a, in, in kind of a nutshell of the early uh, sort of part of my life and, and also the, uh, uh, you know, how I got where I am. So when you go to work for a company and you you are doing work there, you're required to do intellectual property work, which consists of inventions and so forth. And the purpose of this is defensive. So that if you get sued, you can turn around and say, well, you're infringing on this idea or patent or copyright. This is the purpose of it. And it has to be built well organized and structured strategically. You brought up Guitar Hero. Uh, that was my job there. And principally. And uh, I was designing the equipment. I didn't design all of it, but most of it, I think I did most of it. Um, and my job there was was to basically to do the intellectual property work for them uh, and for that franchise. Incidentally, uh, Charles and Kai Huang, um, who hired me, uh, also got me my, um, I, I sit on the board of the finance board at UC Berkeley. And uh, they got me that gig. So that's how it worked out. Now, Charles and I didn't always get along um, very well, but, you know, he kind of remembered me. And uh, this was after I left Oculus uh, back in 2014, I, 2015. So this is this is how it played out for me. And, I, and it still kind of works out well. Although I'm retired now, I really don't um, do any kind of career thing anymore. It's stuff that I... I am involved with that I, I think is important. And I do philanthropic things, um, philanthropic things. I I, uh, I work I work at UC Berkeley. I'm in, I'm in teach there. I'm the innovator in residence at UC Berkeley uh, Jacobs Institute, which I helped finance along with Paul Jacobs and, and other generous people. And I work there. I, I teach in environmental engineering. I have an interest in environmental issues. Um, I'll talk about that later. So um, all of these gigs I got through other people. It's not like I turned in an employment at application to HR. Um, it just didn't work that way for me, uh, principally because the, engine, the video game industry is small. I mean, it sounds large. It's really not. It's not that big. Maybe bigger than what, now than when I was in it. But, but I just loved it. I love doing it. I love working on art. It's a combination of art and tech, as you know. Um, I love the tools. I love like the people, especially a lot of creative people. 
this this is the key to uh, when you're working in an endeavor like that. There are many talented people, and are at, at a video game company, not the publisher necessarily, but the studio. There are artists, there are quality assurance testers, there are software engineers, all these talented people. And you got to recognize that when you're managing them, you got to let them go and and not stick your nose in it. Every time I did that, it didn't work out. So I kind of learned over time, if you got good people and the creative people that you just get out of the way. And uh, kind of what I did at Oculus in a way, I, I uh, interesting, this is another connection here. The uh, guy shows up at my, uh, he calls me and he goes, you know, Greg Deutsch from Activision, he's a chief legal counsel. I said, yeah, yeah, I work with Greg. And he goes, well, he recommended you to help me with this thing. And I said, okay, what is it? And he said, it's a VR headset. And I go, oh no, here we go. But they brought it and and I thought it was okay. I mean, it was good, it was pretty good. Um, but I mostly like the guys there, you know, particularly Brennan Uribe, who I really fond of. A uh, good boss and uh, a straight up guy. Um, now, I'll qualify that by saying when you're in a stressful environment, and the workload is huge. And my workload at Oculus was enormous. 80 hours a week is what I was doing, probably close to that. Uh, tempers run. Uh, and the, the thing that'll drive me out of a company very quickly is politics. I can't stand politics. And I have learned to avoid it. When that starts, I exit, I'm gone. At Oculus, it started to get that way a little bit and I could see it coming. I, I went to my boss, Brendan, and, and uh, this was after the company was acquired by Facebook um, back in 2014. I said, um, in April, so this is what happened. I was in China, I worked in China. We were doing production. I designed the headset, DK1 headset, pretty much my design. DK2, not so much, but I was doing the production on it, production engineering and production on them. So Brendan calls me at, Oh, it's three o'clock in the morning and I knew something was up. I didn't know the exact details. They held that close to their chest. Even on co-founder, I, I was gone all the time. So I wasn't around to see what was really going on. So he goes, guess what? And I, and he, and he, I go, what? Cause it was three o'clock in the morning. I go, don't man, don't call me at three o'clock in the morning. He goes, you have a, a, a pile of money that could go to the moon. I go, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, Facebook acquired us. The deal's done. And, uh, Right then, I knew I was going to leave. I didn't want to stay there. First of all, Facebook's not a hardware company. They're not a video game company. And you go there and there's beanbag chairs and stuff that I'm not familiar with, you know, seating across on a bench table, looking at someone all day long. I, I kind of am a cubicle guy. So uh, it just it wasn't a good fit for me. So I went and talked to Brendan. I said, you know, I have a five years. I have to stay here five years to get all my money. And he goes, well, I go, he goes, let me figure, let me work on that. And he came back to me and said, you can leave. I said, I get all my money. He goes, you get everything. I said, I'll see you later. <laughs> Not quite like that. I, I, I was at Facebook for a while, but I just didn't fit in there. I, you know, as the oldest person there, uh, by a pretty long stretch, maybe 15 or 20 years, a couple of people there, the cook in the kitchen was my age, the chef. But uh, I just didn't see it was a good fit. And and from then on, after I exited, I decided to do, spend my time trying to give back. And that's kind of what I've been doing. Um, 
not so much the last couple of years, but prior to that, I was very generous with the money and I, lots of education oriented stuff, uh, drug policy research, uh, uh, Asia Society, the Math Institute in Berkeley. Incidentally, the gig as a trustee at the Math Institute is a prestigious place, a top tier mathematicians there was due to a guy I worked with who got me hooked up with uh, David Eisenbud, who's the boss there. And then I'm on board. And of course, got a little bit of money, not, not too much, but uh, that's how it played out. You know, they just say he's a good guy and he's smart and, you know, you try, try each other out and see how it works. And so same thing kind of went down with Rand, although I'm not really working with Rand at this moment, but um, they contacted me and they said, you know, we're doing research on opioids. And I go, opioids? Why are you researching that? Well, because lots of people are dying from overdoses. And so that's how I got involved with that. Um, the the uh, the issue there is, is just, it's staggering. There, since 2019, San Francisco has had 3,000 deaths from opioid overdose. Unbelievable. And uh, there's... It's it's a hard thing to control, right? You arrest you, you arrest people for it. You're not really getting them treated, and they have to go into a treatment institution, mental institutions, basically, where you have to put them to get their spiritual stuff straightened out. And so, ISIS was on board with that. And Asia Society I worked in China, spent a lot of time in China. I, 15 years out of the last 30, I was there. So, um, it just was a a good, good fit, and and Asia Society is a good fit, and I really like the people there. Margaret Connolly, I like uh, all, all those people. They're, they're just great. So that's kind of what I'm doing. Um, the the you, you have a, a question about VR, and and I'll I will get to that right now because um, I'm not going to say anything bad about anyone. Uh, I know the people who did the Apple headset. Uh, the Vision Pro, it's spectacularly good. Um, I know, of course, my staff and people that I work with, the colleagues, but um, it's it just hasn't taken off. It, it hasn't, and there's a lot of reasons for that. It makes people sick. Now, that's a principal one. It's called vestibular illness, dizziness. Make the dizzy. A lot of people get dizzy from it. I get a little bit of dizziness from it. It's really uncomfortable. And that, that's the principal holdback, the comfort level of having on your head any VR company, any headset maker is going to run into this. And I spent a lot of time trying to fix that with head tracking and so forth and a system to track position and space with great detail and great accuracy after I left Oculus. And I didn't, I wasn't able to fix that. And uh, the inventor side of me was telling me I need to attack that problem. And we did. We spent, that my staff here, we spent oh, a year on that right after I left. Because I thought I was going to get a breakthrough. I thought everyone was doing it wrong and I could do it, but it turns out it's not a fixable thing. And uh, so, to your question in VR, what the issues with it are is is this just now people when you play a video game, right? The visual part of it fades. The gameplay is the important part. How the strategy of the game plays, and it has to be very carefully correct. Crafted. I'm not talking about Guitar Hero. Guitar Hero is different. That's a quick play rhythm game. I'm talking about an FPS first-person shooter. Um, in order to keep the players engaged, you have to give them cookies of one sort or another. And 
the, the visual part of it's less important. Um, if I were in video games today, I would be working in mobile. That's where I would be because everyone has a phone and that's the greatest distribution of your content that you can get. Uh, games, there's a game called Roblox. It's quite popular with young people. Uh, it's done really well uh, since COVID hit. Uh, 2019, it's, it's uh, user base has gone up spectacularly well. It's a really popular game. It has its own currency and it's a social thing, right? Your kids play with each other and they're playing with their friends online. That's the attractor to it. It's social. And if you miss that strategy and social, the game, you're going to miss it. The game will miss. And so to make a long story short, um, Oculus doesn't play well into that particular thing. It's kind of isolating. The headsets are isolating. Quest is kind of isolating how to fix that. Um, I'm not sure how to fix that, but such such a prop and essential problems with it. So the visual part, the heads, VR headset Quest is very, very good. It's great. Um, is very good. You know, the visual part is very good, but it's not important to gameplay. And Facebook Meta is not a game company, right? And they kind of screwed up the launch of Horizon Worlds and the communication was not right. That's the other part is the video game, the trailer for the game has to play like a movie. It has to draw you in. And if you notice there's a commonality in these trailers and there's always a person an anti-hero or a hero who they present in the trailer first. And so you get this identity, empathetic identity going with them. That's the key. So you have to draw people and you, you, you play on their human side. And that's, that's really the key to the gate game. And I'm not sure that VR is, is in that spectrum uh, of things. So that's my read on it. I think, you know, but the guys at Apple, those guys really tried to hire me. I don't know. I was just left Oculus. I didn't, wasn't too thrilled with it, but, uh, they, um, I mean, Apple's a, a three trillion dollar company. It's as, it's got the GDP of some countries, <laughs> the GDP of Mexico, I think, pretty close to that. Not sure that's true, but I think they're ten trillion or something like that. But you know, it's got the G. It, it's just a successful company. Whatever happens with Vision Pro won't affect their bottom line. Uh, just about everybody in the United States owns an iPhone. I would say a lot of people do. And, uh, and so if I were to put a betting man, I would say that the Apple uh, Vision Pro, if there were going to be in gaming, probably stand the best chance, probably. But the price point, it's $3,400, right? That's what a car costs. You know, how is a person in Guadalajara, Mexico, going to afford a $3,400 headset? They have to figure that, that out. It has to be financed somehow. And if given a choice of paying rent for a year or buying the Vision Pro, I think these people would choose the rent, right? <laughs> a natural thing. So they uh, have um, launched it and we'll see how it does. Uh, I am wrong often and I may be wrong on that one, uh, but it's just tough. Um, there's other, you know, they were, everyone was talking about VR like maybe eight or nine years ago it was on popular comedy show called Silicon Valley. They skewered it, they skewered Oculus. And uh, now they're not really talking about it anymore. They're talking about AI, right? You hear that a lot. Um, now going back into the 90s, I was hearing about this too. And I go, what is it? Mm -hmm. What is it, your view on AI and ChatGPT? Yeah, well, 
Uh, ChatGPT is uh, a software layer that runs on a supercomputer. And the supercomputer is the Azure supercomputer by Microsoft. They've built a, a AI supercomputer. It's really got a standard backbone, but it has a bunch of GPUs in it. Here's an interesting point, I'll, and then I'll get on to the question of ChatGPT. Without video games, there would be no AI. Now, video games don't use AI, but they use a GPU. And if it were AI alone uh, that created the market for GPUs, it's just not that big. But the video games created the GPU. The GPU is the graphics processing unit that sits inside of a desktop, a, a desktop uh, gaming rig or uh, Sony PlayStation or what have you. There's the engine that's running the graphics. The mathematics involved, the tensor mathematics involved in AI are the same thing that uses video games use pretty much the same stuff for shading and polygon rendering and so forth for a game. So because of video games, all of a sudden we have GPUs everywhere, right? And, and you can't run AI on a standard computer. It's too slow. The latest um, NVIDIA GPU is 100 teraflops. It's 100 trillion floating point operations per second, unheard of uh, 15 years ago. You get 10 of those in a, in a bank, on a bus, on a computer, and you can run them in parallel. And, and so because of, I, I maintain because of video games, that's it made AI possible. Um, everyone's buying GPUs from NVIDIA and, and other people. I'm not going to get into who's making those, but mostly NVIDIA. So everyone's buying them right now. Elon Musk just bought a, bu a bunch of them for some reason. I don't know what he's doing, but uh, to your question, uh, chat GPT, th there's no nothing novel or new there. That's AI has been around for since the 40s. Um, they, they had a running tensor mathematics on a standard computer in the 60s. And it's just too slow and to make it to do anything. It maybe print out one word a minute, you know, chat GPT. So uh, it's just uh, the evolution is, is played out and in, in it's primarily due to, to video games to our street. Now, the question of chat GPT, it's complicated. There's a guy, uh, Wolfram, Matt, Wolfram's a math guy. Um, I think his name is Steve Wolfram. He did a write up on that. It's a very good write up on the layers of chat GPT. But it's basically the backbone of that is a Microsoft supercomputer that's remote, you know, it's sitting in probably in Washington somewhere. And that's the background of it. So to your question, you're going to see more of this kind of thing. What's shocking about ChatGPT? So I ran my name in ChatGPT to see what it said. It was all wrong. Most of the stuff was not right, but I wanted to see how accurate it was. And it's what it's seeded with. So if there is a Reddit column, uh, that's negative about someone and you type their name name in there more than likely they'll pull up some sort of negative something or other that someone has physically entered into a computer typed into uh, reddit or whatever on wikipedia that's where its sources are it pulls those from from those sources that's where it's getting its information question mm -hmm. to you how do you know what are the real news and what are the fake news the information you get from chat gpt how do it's, you identify well, you, you can't tell. There's no way to tell. There's no there's no editor, right? At a newspaper, right? There's supposed to be an editor. 
who reviews all of the opinionated stuff and the articles and sorts through that. And a good editor can figure that out. Now, there's no editor that I've seen in there. Anyone's the editor, right? You just stick data in somewhere and it pulls it out and it adds that to the pile of stuff about a subject per, per se. So let's say, so that that's my my feeling on it is that it can be spoofed and a little, little bit scary. Um, I, I think uh, that you could Abbott write an article with completely false information and it's believable, a perfect grammar almost, and it's believable. So that's the problem with it. And it's, there's, you could uh, seed it with things about an, a political candidate, right? And say negative things about this person. It may not be true, but it becomes everywhere. It gets distributed out. So I know a lot of reporters go to that to, type in stuff to find out do some research quick easy research right they don't have to search around too much right so um but there's you know cheating at in college you can have write an essay for you uh, chat chat gpt can also write songs little songs little country western songs so yeah it's a little it's an it's an un, un, unsure at this point how that's going to play out in the society and uh you could use it to to stick bad information about a country, let's say, you know, it, it, there's a number of things. It's just, it's a lot of negatives to it. I've seen some art, VR art. Um, it's demonic looking stuff. I just, um, I just don't, I, I don't think it's, it's bright and cheery stuff. <laughs> so it, yeah, it has, it's, there's a negative, there's a dark side of it. Uh, and, and uh, the, who, how to control this? Well, there is no legislation right now that I'm aware of that is tempting to control it. Any legislation that comes out of Washington, I wouldn't trust. It's you know politically slanted, probably. So I you know I, I just think that there's a, a dark side of it. Um, and uh, here's the other thing: a lot of people don't know what it is, what AI is. They don't know, but I do. I know what I know what the, I know that what's underneath it all. So um, it's a neural network. That's what basically drives it. So it's a scary term. You know, what is AI? Well, it's a neural network, you know, but they don't know. And so if you don't know what it is, uh, it can be kind of scary, I think, scary term. So there's a lot of talk about it right now. You could wage uh, a PR war against an enemy using AI and just distribute fake articles, you know, like Ukraine just lost 100,000 soldiers and that goes everywhere. And it's not, it may not be true, but or something like that, you know, it's, it's just, uh, it's a little, a little scary. And there's a good reason to worry about it. Um, it, you know, that a neural net doesn't think it doesn't do that. It's pattern, it's pattern recognition. That's what it's good at. It does very quickly. It's, that's essentially the core of it. And initially was used for facial recognition because it can recognize faces, right? That's the kind of, that's the kind of, of technology it is really. So to your question, I think there's good reason to worry about it, um, particularly with, you know, you see this going on in society now, like you'll see something appear somewhere, then you find it, and all the news networks pick it up, they find it's not true, completely not true. You can imagine that if you had a machine that could do that 24-7, how potentially hazardous that would be, especially liberty or something like that, freedom. And so I think you have a good point. Daphne, uh, in, in asking me this, because I, I think that's a reason to worry. Um, can uh, a political entity uh, 
regulate that. I don't think they should because they're going to regulate it with a bias because they're going to make it look good for themselves, right? So maybe there has to be a, an AI governance of some sort, a machine that does the governance. Yeah, I don't know. So that's going to be a tough one. Yeah. So I, in the '90s, I took through the extension at UC Berkeley. I took AI classes there because I had no idea what it was. Uh, I thought it was a brain, a computer brain, or something, and I wanted to find out. And I found out later it's just math. It's linear algebra. It's what it's doing very quickly. So I'm not so scared of, of that. But yeah, it's it's it, when you, you see the, the thing about ChatGPT, it allows a layman to play with it, right? You don't have to have any education to knock it around, right? A neural network, you know, 30 years ago, you had to be a programmer with the data in it. You had to teach it. You had to use the programming methods to teach it. So, or to get the information out. But now a layman can use it, and it's quite startling. And the grammar, like I said, the grammar and spelling are near perfect. And I just wonder about cheating. Like if you got asked to write an essay, you would, you what you would do as an instructor is give them the question, and then you, the instructor takes out the chat GPT and gets the the output. And then compares it to what the students turn. <laughs> If they're too close, then you know something's up. But I didn't want any. I, I, I'm at UC Berkeley. I teach environmental engineering. I don't want any cheating there. I'm not aware of it, but I don't run any of that there. They don't need to cheat. The students at Berkeley are pretty pretty sharp for the most part. So I'm sure it goes on. So incidentally, speaking of cheating, when I was in college, uh, I went yeah, at Berkeley. I took I took linear algebra, right? Uh, discrete mathematics, which is a weird thing. And uh, I, I had it overlapped in it with another class. Like I took the, I just screwed up my schedule, so I had to miss lectures. I didn't go to the lectures. I went to the other lecture, and uh, and I went in at the, to, to take the final, and I did really well on it because I've studied it right. So I go in there, and the instructor goes, "You haven't been here," and I said, "I know. I got another class." And she goes, "You, we, this is odd." She goes, "Your score, you know, your." your The difference between your your homework and your your midterms and and your finals is too different. And I explained to her that I cram, which is what I did. No, I don't recommend that. But and she said, well, you got to take it over. You got to take the final over. I said, fine, I'll do it right now. And I did, and I did. I got a better score <laughs> because I already take kind of taken it. So so yeah, that's a, that's the thing about cheating is that you know it's it's not a beneficial at, at all and you if you cheat and you carry that into your work life it's just dumb it's just a dumb thing to do people can see it you know so when you talk about guitar hero video game and you mentioned that you love to draw did you create all the characters i did not um here's what went down there was another company uh, uh, this is a company called red octane charles and kai huang's startup company right video game rental business they decided to publish a game it's a great book this would be a great book and the game uh was a dancing game like dance dance revolution which came out in 99 you basically sit on a mat with switches and you dance right it instructs you where to put your feet and uh it's called a rhythm game so they play a song and you got to dance to it and then the better you dance the better your score right so they created a rhythm game uh and got sued by by konami Uh, DDR's publisher. So they had this game engine uh, with another company called Harmonix. Harmonix wrote the game. We didn't. We weren't game. We weren't a game studio. We made hardware there. So we hired Harmonix to write Guitar Hero One. And incidentally, the original Guitar Hero One, we could not get the original artist tracks because a lot of artists thought it was dumb, a dumb idea to have an air guitar game 
but a few of them didn't. They saw it. And Dave Mustaine from Megadeth, we got their masters for Prince, uh, 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 Symphony of Destruction. We got their masters, and he thought it was a great, great idea. And he was right. He's an artist, that guy. He's, he's an unusual guy. He's got issues, but um, that's how it went down. And so we had harmonics right at the game. We built another guy and myself built uh, the hardware. I didn't really do too much on the wired guitar stuff, but uh, they built the hardware in China and bundled it with the game. Now, this was a risky undertaking for Activision to acquire the company. Uh, before we published the game, they had to require, they were going to acquire us for the low sum of $120 million is what they got. That's cheap. Um, and it's risky because uh, it's hardware, right? And it's expensive, right? We were, we were paying $8 for the plastic guitar bundled with the, the CD for the game. I don't know CDs back then and a box and it goes to, you know, Best Buy or something like that, Walmart, um, very risky. And they, they're, they're, they're adverse to doing hardware because one problem and it's a disaster. There were no problems. We had didn't have had very like zero returns on the guitar, so where they were perfect, and and so it did phenomenally well. It was a cultural hit. I had no idea. I had no idea what's going to happen. I thought it was fun. I you know I'm not a deep dance dance revolution guy. I don't like that type of game. I'm, I'm more of a co cockpit game guy. So they they it did well. Guitar Hero two, Guitar Hero three, four, Guitar Hero four, Guitar Hero four is a world tour. 64 million units, uh, the highest grossing video game up to that point in 2006 of all time. Um, everybody that was affiliated with Red Octane at slash guitar slash Activision did well. Um, it was nice for me. I, I sold chips to the, I sold the chipset for Guitar Hero. That's how I got my, my feet in there kind of. I had a chipset for a PS2 game controller that I had every single it worked with every single game. It was flawless. I spent a lot of time on that. Essentially, that's what I sold into the into uh, the, into the franchise. I sold chips to them, and, and I don't think they liked that very much. But so everyone did well, and and I was happy with it. Um, I got some recognition for that, I think, and and I sold my I sold my all my video game patents to them to Activision too, selling stuff. So I just. Uh, and I didn't know uh, what patents, I don't, I have a patent that's not even being used to give me 50 grand. So what, give me 50 grand, I'll sell it. I'm not using it. Kind of what my thinking was, but I think they go for a much higher premium now, but, uh, and the patents were the sort of, some of the background of Guitar Hero were those patents. So um, I had patents on other kinds of stuff, a, um, uh, a, a balance board game and some other stuff, uh, uh, drums and things like that that I was working on, so. Overall positive experience, yeah. I also have another question. So you mentioned earlier about you are innovator in residence in UC Berkeley. Yes. And you was talking about the climate change. Yeah. Can you tell us more about it? Well, I'll, I'll tell you how I ended up at Jacobs. Uh, I helped build the place. So I donated money and I got involved um, with the staff. And they're wonderful. That's the best place I've ever worked at Berkeley. I mean, despite the fact that I hated the place when I was a kid, when I was young, it's actually a great place. Really nice people there and low politics, just the perfect fit. So I like the place and I like the staff, especially uh, the dean and and uh, other folks that work there, um, professors and so forth. I just hit it off with them, I think. Um, 
so the center that we built is a maker space. Um, I donated money as did Paul Jacobs, the, the chairman of Qualcomm. Paul and I principally, I think, put most of the cash into that. And what it is, it's over on the corner of campus. The kids go there and they learn how to use their hands. The problem I had with hiring people was always hand skills. They didn't have the ability to use tools and things like that. I don't know what happened. They used to teach that in when I was in high school. We taught that you had to go to a shop class, right? High value stuff. And I just thought it would be uh, to get modern tools in there, 3D printers and so forth, and get the students familiar with those. Because when they go into their job at the startup company or wherever they go, they're going to be using that stuff. They're probably prototyping things and using stuff like that. So that's the purpose of the place. It's a makerspace, essentially teaching hand skills and thought process and make art and beautiful tables and all kinds of stuff there. It's all, it's a mix of things. So it's a playpen, really is what it is for for, for the students and, and me, me too. So in, incidentally, I learned about 3D printers, which is printing objects like you could print these glasses here, let's say, on a, in a machine, just print them out, right? And uh, I learned about that at Oculus. Before that, in a professional company, we didn't do that there. We had, we had an outside vendor do that for us. So, and then when I left Oculus, I bought all kinds of 3D printers because I just, I could see the utility. And that's essentially what ended up at Jacobs or bunch of 3D printers and, and uh, CNC routers for cutting wood shapes and art and so forth. So just a great place to learn. And I think it's very popular on campus. It's a super popular place. And they have a graduate program, a master's program, 17 months, undergrad uh, also. So to, to segue into the environmental stuff. I am, I, I remember being in LA as a kid and it was smoky all the time. Like if you're in LA, like say Palo Verde and you look across the valley, you can see the mountains on the other side. You can these days, you could not see them before. And it was due to automobile emissions, hundred percent. That's what was causing it mostly. And, and uh, so what they did was it came out with this thing called a catalytic converter. It's got a chemical in there that converts unburned hydrocarbons and so forth to CO2 and water. That's what it does. Uh, that cleaned the air up. Just a little device like that. But that and other stuff too, but fuel injection, things like that. Computers on cars cleaned it up. So this is that was my interest um, in that stuff. I, I think that, you know, on a, on a larger scale, you know, here's a little story. Um, you know, coal as a fuel. You hear of negative things about it, right? It's an excellent fuel. The amount of processing you have to do to coal to get it into the boiler and making energy for you is very little. And so the total energy equation for coal is zero processing. You dig, it's a rock, you dig it out of the ground, you fill it in a bucket, you, that's basically all you do with it. The problem with coal is it's cheap and, and it gets, uh, and because it's cheap, it's burned without thoughts of um, making it efficient, making it more efficient. So a vehicle, uh, like a car, if you have a gasoline car, I've got an EV, electric car, is only 29% efficient. The 29% of the calories you put in there go to turning the wheels. The rest is heat, dissipated as heat. So CO2 gas comes out, uh, other gases too, but it's, it's, it's not, you know, it's 29% efficient, it's pretty bad. Now there's others who claim that the cars are more efficient, hybrids and so forth yeah you can recover a lot of the energy the inertial energy of the car by putting it in a battery right that's, that's kind of how it works so i started getting into the climate change this is well if it's co2 which is causing 
uh, global warming, like the place is getting warmer. I did the research. It is. It's getting warmer for sure. At night, it's not getting warmer in the day. It's getting warmer at night. The nighttime maximum temperatures have gone up, but not as same rate as the, as the minimum temperatures, which means energy is being retained in the atmosphere and and not being emitted out into space. If it's clear and you're in the desert that a cubic meter of air heats up, it emits its radiation back up into space, goes away up, out into space. So this is not happening uh, like it should. And, and so I, I looked at the causality issues. Um, and the more I looked at CO2 as the cause of the least, it, I think it is actually, I don't think that's it. Now I'll qualify it. I'm not a chemist. Other chemists I've talked to have said I'm wrong. I'm not, I'm not a meteorologist or climatologist. I'm just a data gatherer. And we went around and gathered data for, for irrigation sites. We got data from the government on all the cities in the United States without, a, without a doubt the average temperature is going up at a rate of 0.04 degrees per year, 0.04 degrees per year. In 10 years, it goes up four tenths of a degree, 0.5, let's say half a degree, right? So it is. So what's the cause of it? Well, if you look at CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere, it's very, very small. I'll give you an example. If you had a million molecules of air, you just took a scoop of air, and each molecule is the size of a ping pong ball, which is 1.57 inches, and laid all those molecules, that million molecules, end to end, it would stretch 25 miles, 25 miles from here to Santa, downtown San Jose, California. Of that, the CO2 occupies 25 feet of that 25 miles. It's super low concentrations. So just a small portion of that is CO2. I didn't know this. I got this right from the government here in the United States. So it's very, very small. And how much has it gone up in the last 250 years? Well, it's no longer 24 feet, it's 50 feet. It's very small increase, very small. So this is, my claim is we don't know what's causing this. And by targeting CO2 emissions, we may be not looking at the right thing and wasting a bunch of time doing research on it to find out that it's not CO2. Um, there's something else going on. I don't know what it is. Water vapor uh, is a greenhouse gas. It's the most effective. Um, it is. It, humid air, like, like you go to a tropical place, right? You get humid air and you walk through that, you're getting hot. And that's because the, the heat that's in the air is getting into your body. It's going into your body. The, the thermal exchange is going, acting in your body starts sweating. This is a powerful greenhouse gas. And incidentally, Daphne, it's raining more. It is at proportional to how much the temperature's gone up. It's getting rainier and warmer. And so the cause of that, I don't know, but I don't think it's CO2, the concentrations are too low. The CO2, the concentration of water compared to CO2, let's say it's a water molecule, right? Uh, it's 20,000 parts per million for water, roughly at 15% humidity and 240 parts per million for CO2. So it's just a much larger scale. So if it's getting rain, rainier and, and everywhere it is, everywhere in the United States, the rain is going, getting more, it's getting rainier and rainier every year. Now we had a drought here, right in California, but that's temporary. We get that here. It gets, it has that here and it goes, it goes away and gets dry for a few years and it rains again and it gets dry. It's always been like that here. So 
So I think uh, in terms of you know the forest fires and so forth, the climate events, uh, it, it certainly is getting warmer. Yeah, and it, it's not drier, it's getting rainier. So something's wrong with the data. And that's this is my claim. And I got a lot of people who disagree with me. Something's wrong with what we're being told. And it, no one's, people are afraid to speak out, right? I mean, if you're a scientist and you're getting grants and so forth, and you come up with a different conclusion than the consensus, it's not good. You may not get your grant. <laughs> Pay me to find what you're looking for, you know? So that's the kind, that's kind of uh, my uh, study and, and, and the research we did here on that. It just turns out that it, I was surprised by the finding and because I didn't know I had to do the work. I never looked at CO2 and, you know, I never didn't even care. <laughs> so, so by, if, if it is CO2, right, let's just say it is, let's, let's take our argument. You got to make the cars more efficient. They got to go from 29% efficiency to 90% efficiency. That might remove a lot of the CO2 if that's what's causing it. I don't think so from the atmosphere. So at, at UC Berkeley, that's what I teach. I'm teaching uh, electric vehicle technology. I know the platform well. Um, I did all the work and research on it so I can, um, can teach it now. So you got to make the cars and everything more efficient. And that's the solution probably if it's CO2. Not my opinion, but on the cause. So to make a long story short, um, I was surprised by the conclusion we had here and uh, it's not popular. <laughs> It goes against the, you know, I just, before we had, did our interview here, I went online and said, like, what's the consensus in the scientific community? Well, 90% of the scientists who do work on this subject think it's CO2. And and that's what they think, but not me. So Well, soon I, enough, 2035, we're going to have electric cars, right? In California. Yeah. And that may have a different data at that point. Could be, and this could be temporary, but a temporary maybe a 250 year, 250 year temporary. It may, this may be a long cycle that outlives us, all of us. Could be the earth, you know, we're like, we're like a very temporary being on this planet in this, in the scheme of how long the earth's been around. So, you know, our, our sample is very small, you know, and you have to avoid hysteria too. You know, every year, they every like decade, they tell us something's going to kill us. It was going to be an ice age, right? Remember that in the 70s? And then it was it was Freon gas that they use in refrigerants. So it was ruining, and, and that sort of went away. And then the ice caps are going to melt, and that sort of went away. It's just, that's just hysteria. And people shouldn't play that. They should just look for the facts. And the fact is, that I, I'm not sure what the status of the ice caps are, but um, all that oceanfront property that the uh, politicians bought, uh, there's how, why would they buy oceanfront property if they thought if the ocean was going to rise? You know, I don't know if that makes sense. So, I do have a question for you about the drug policy, since yeah. you are the expert for that. Do you think we will ever fix San Francisco issues? Oh, I mean, yeah. not just not just San Francisco. I know it's all over the country. Yeah. Drug addiction, particularly. Uh, illegal drugs, opioids, is a disease. You have to recognize that it's, it's a disease. If you, you got to get your head around that. It has to be treated in a, in a, in a medical facility. It may be a psycho, you know, psychiatric facility, but it has to be treated that way. What to do about uh, 60,000 people in Los Angeles who are addicted? There's just no place large enough. Uh, same in San Francisco. Are you going to 
what are you going to do? You're going to build a place out in the desert, a hospital, and move them out there? That seems like anti-American or not humane. Certainly, what we're doing now is inhumane. That's that's what it's it's just shocking that place, San Francisco. Is, it's really gone into the gutter. And uh, I've I lived here most of my life, 50 uh, years, and uh, uh, it's just got worse. It's gotten worse. Uh, the days of San Francisco uh, in the 1980s with the 49ers and Joe Montana and Jerry Rice are over with. Um, now what you have is 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 really. Uh, you know, vacancies in commercial buildings, uh, people um, who are afraid to go downtown. Uh, you know, it's a scary thing. And same with LA. This is not just San Francisco. That place is a lot of major metropolitan places like that. So the root of that, the root of homelessness is addiction. I mean, I hate to say it. That's kind of what it is. You know, people who, who are a uh, uh, little mentally ill, you mean crazy people, right? But they can hold a job, right? Crazy person, right? You meet them. I've run into them. I work with them, right? Just a little wacky. wacky. Uh, but you add into that a substance like fentanyl, and it pushes that wackiness into a new dimension. And they're crazy. They're truly crazy. So um, there is a seed for that already there. Um, and you you apply something like fentanyl to that, and it it's it's not good. You know. So the treatment that you have to give for that is an intensive treatment program. They have to be in locked away for maybe a year, you know? Wow. Yeah. It's, it's a, but you'll save lives. And, you know, fentanyl opiate opioids, not just fentanyl, but opiates have killed more people in San Francisco than COVID by three to one. They don't talk about that though. You know? So, uh, it's just, uh, they were saying the other day that uh, they only had 525 deaths from January to May of this year. I don't think that's much to brag about, you know. So I think that's the figure. But uh, I, it's just a you know very dangerous thing. Where is it coming from? It's it's coming across the border. Uh, let's face it. You know, you can mail it here too. You can mail it from a foreign country in a package. It can go undetected on the dark web. You see, I didn't know about the dark web until I, the guys at Oculus told me about it. I said, hey, uh, you can download this browser and check it out. You can hire a hitman. <laughs> On Silk Road, you can hire a hitman. <laughs> I can check it out. But there's all kinds of stuff. So, I mean, the fact of the matter is controlling that would be very difficult. Uh, you know, you can't raid people's homes without a warrant. Because a lot of things you can't do here. You don't want to do that stuff. So, uh, my... My uh, thing on that is, uh, you know, there has to be uh, better policing, uh, throw people in jail when they're caught with that. If you throw them in jail, then they don't have access to it and they may clean up. It may save some lives. Um, jail usually for a person like that is a shocker for the first time they get it. And, and uh, if they're not getting that, um, they're not getting part of the treatment. You can offer them to go to jail. You go into jail, you have to be here for six months and you go into a treatment program. That's your sentence. You don't want to go to a treatment program. Or go to a mental hospital, psychiatric hospital. You're gonna stay in jail, and the person might be alive. And uh, you know, Robert De Niro's uh, grandson just died of an overdose, a fentanyl overdose. Unbelievable. It's affecting broad swaths of people. It's not particular to a class. It's affecting lots and lots of families. It's 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 a uh, pretty bad. It's it's a really bad disease to to have to watch a family member go down with that. It's just tough. So um, that's in a nutshell my interest in it. I thought I could help. Um, I'm not sure how much help I've done besides the financial part, uh, helping them out, pay for stuff. But 
you know, we've got researchers working on it, Rand, to try to figure out. They've written a book. Um, but yeah, I think the real problem is just having to, to put the people in an institution that, for, for their own good, for the good of society, too. You catch a drug dealer, person selling that stuff, they need to go to prison. Like, questions asked, they go right to prison. Soon to be replaced by another drug dealer, and you put him in prison. And so, no, you got to, I mean, you got to, it has to be punitive. Um, and I don't think that's the only problem with San Francisco and LA and places like that. You know, also the, the district attorney and it's a lot of stuff about that. Um, you know, not punishing people for petty crimes, like stealing under a thousand dollars. It's just crazy. You know, you could put them in jail and straighten some people out, especially young people. They just uh, I don't like this place. I'm not going back here. And then they stop. So yeah, that's in a nutshell. I, my involvement with that was uh, providing the, the funding for the research and and uh, being a part of it, although I haven't really participated too much in that lately. So. Okay, let me ask you one last question. You yeah. mentioned you retired. It doesn't look like it because your office is way busier than mine. Uh, yeah. What are your hobbies that well, during your retirement years? Oh, yeah. So I built um, two two cars, two electric cars, two electric vehicles, not a car, and two cars. Uh, from basically scratch built one of them, and the other one was modified a car. So I like doing that. Um, I use that as a teaching tool for people here who work here. And uh, the foundation that I have is trying to help foster children. I also donate the wine that I make here, but um, I, that's my that's what I'm doing. I like being involved with Berkeley. I like teaching there. Um, I don't know if I teach this fall, but I don't think I am. But um, I'm too busy to, right now. So. Yeah, it's just a full-blown lab and stuff, and I've got all the equipment for development. Um, I like doing that. It's, it's fun to me. Designing stuff for a guy like me who likes to do creative things it was just a gift. I mean, I don't, the education I got um, and and everything that I got out of being involved with um, technology was just a gift. I love doing it. I enjoy it. Um, it's like art in a way. It's not. You know, it's not like a painting, right? But it, it is art to me, and uh, doing things that are clever. I like to do clever things, so I enjoy it. Now I don't really patent things anymore. I just give this stuff away if I have it, and, and I haven't found too much interest. Went into cybersecurity stuff for a while. Worked on that with another engineer here. Interesting. <laughs> uh, that was a very, very revealing thing, and then.、Um, Of course, with drone abatement, we were trying to figure out if we could take out a drone. We can,、um, not 100, but pretty pretty easy to take them out. So, those kinds of things, like those little, you know, those little quadcopter drones you see flying around at fairs and stuff, could, using a machine to get to make those things go away because they're dangerous. You could actually put a munition, putting munitions on them and dropping them on people in Ukraine, right? So, that is a those things are a threat. And and the interesting thing about that is like, if you have If you're a commander and a military commander, and you want to send someone out, their conscience—you said that person—I may send that person to his death. He may get killed, right? You remove that, and now you've got a robot. And what impact they'll have on warfare?、Uh, there's no longer the risk, really. To—I mean, you're going to feel okay if the robot gets blown up, right?、It's、no big deal.、Uh, you, it may change the way warfare is conducted because you will take chances. That you normally wouldn't take with a human being. So, 
these things are, are you know, they're dangerous. I think they're pretty dangerous, um, you know, in, in warfare and so forth. And Angela Merkel had one fly up on stage when she was there. Somebody flew one up those things up. Um, yeah. And they were attacking people. I think it was in Saudi Arabia on a parade. They were dropping bombs and stuff on people with a drone. So I spent time on that and also electric vehicles. We built two electric things here that pretty much uh, just like an electric car. Uh, they're stored in a shed out there. <laughs> we build that stuff though, and, and I use it as a teaching tool and also the inventing part. If, uh, if I can sell the invention, uh, great, you know, I'll sell it. Thank you, Jack, for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. It was a, a pleasure. And uh, I hope to see you, if you're around this area, come by and say hi. Okay, I will. Thank you so much. All right, thanks, Daphne. You have just listened to Tall Radio Podcast. For more podcasts, visit www.touchalife.org.